may not have a film fixation, but we're here for a noir education. Beebidi-boo, doot-doodle-doo, dee-ba-da-pow. Welcome to a Real Education Noir, episode 50! 50! 50. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah! Uh, I am Melissa, and I am here today with... Allie! And, sadly not Tanya, uh, there was some miscommunication, but instead we have our original third... Wendy! Wendy! Wendy is here! Wendy is Flashback! Here. Flashback episode! <laughs> yes! Yes! Hi, Max! Max Thank is you. excited to have you, too, Wendy. Max, oh. I'm excited to have Max! Come yeah. here, Max! Oh, Max, Max likes Wendy. Max likes everybody. He does. does. But he especially likes Wendy. He does. He's got good taste. <laughs> he does. Oh, ah! He's so excited. Yes, yes, you good boy. So, dear listeners, uh, now that we've got the dog <laughs> <going> down, <laughs> uh, we are going to be watching a movie called Double Indemnity. Hell is, yes! Which is one of the uh, world's great film noirs, which is a good thing for a film noir podcast. Yeah, like, yeah, you know. seriously, you're doing a film noir podcast and you haven't covered Double Indemnity. You should do that at some point. And this is the perfect time. Yeah, because Ellie hasn't seen it. I've not. I actually know, like literally nothing sweet about double indemnity except for the fact that it is a title it is a classic that is it yeah i don't know who's in it i don't have any idea what the plot oh. is oh i i am coming in completely oh this is fantastic blind. the right? only way i could be less informed is if i didn't know it existed at all mm-hmm so, this is amazing. I don't I'm know so what year it was. Right I don't know who directed nothing. Yeah. So part of the reason we haven't gotten to it before on this podcast is because we did an episode on it for real education, the the regular flavor of uh, real education, <laughs> the, 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 the generic was, vanilla. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> you know, because we we did because it it's one considered one of the, the great movies of all time, and mm. it's one of the really. Like, top five films noir. It's, a, it's an exemplar of film noir. It's yeah. like the platonic ideal of film film noir. Yeah. Uh, Billy Wilder made two of those, and they're both in that top five. Because there's Sunset Boulevard, and mm. there's this. Oh! <laughs> now I'm super excited, because yeah. I love the hell out of Sunset Boulevard. Okay, good. You've seen Sunset Boulevard. Yes. Yes. Oh, you're, we went to the yes. heights and saw it. Oh, yes. delicious. balls. So delicious. Yeah. So good, so good. So I'm... I, I won't say anything else. Nope. Because this was, this is 1944. This is right in the middle of film noir era. It film noir so hard and you're going to love it, Allie. Okay, Yay. so dear listeners, if you haven't seen Double Indemnity, please, please go see it. Yes. And uh, it, it, it's, it's available for rental. It's one of my favorite in... tropes slash concepts that gets, ex- that gets explored in this type of movie. Say no more. Yeah. We'll talk about that after. But oh, I yeah. just want to like... <laughs> When uh, Convergence did a film noir themed con, yeah, Cinemarec showed this film, and there were, there was actually somebody who was like, ah, "That's not science fiction." I'm like, "That is film noir," and if you're a film geek, you should have seen it. So shut up and sit down. Yes, so, yes, very true. Because <laughs> I'm me. So let's get to that. Yeah, we should. So, dear listeners, we will be right back after this lovely musical interlude, probably by Miklos Rosa, who did the music for the movie. <laughs>
are back. And Ellie has now seen Double Indemnity. So, Ellie, what did you think? Uh, it was quite good. I mean, which is an understatement, of course. <laughs> um, I, you know, I... Very good story. Very snappy dialogue. You know, mm-hmm. not not quite as snappy as some of the stuff we watched, but yeah. there's some really good zingers in that script. Um, I enjoyed the plot. I felt it treated the female characters well. Mm-hmm. Apart from the end where I was <laughs> shouting at the screen, no, don't send the boyfriend back to her. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know he's innocent, but don't send him back to her. He's, he's gonna abuse her. He's innocent of the crime, but he's not an innocent person. No, yeah. no, it's only a matter of time before he does something bad, but you know, or Bad to her specifically. Yeah. So that part I was a little less than thrilled about. But, I okay, I was pleasantly surprised that they did not have the twist speed that he fell in love with Lola. Because mm-hmm. I really thought that's where it was headed. That he was going to be, I've fallen for Lola. She's such a sweet kid. And now that I know this thing uh, about Phyllis, you know, I can't trust her anymore. And I realize how terrible she was. And I shouldn't have gone in for this. So this is why I must do it. I thought it was going to be because he changed his allegiance. Oh, no. And no. instead, he does it purely because he's, he, he kills Phyllis purely because he wants to get away with it. Yeah. Because he thinks he has the best shot of getting away with it. And his conscience catches him at the last moment when the fall guy shows up. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and plus he knows he's done for anyway because how else are you going to explain the gunshots? Right. Like, he knows. Well, yeah, by the, by the point he lets the kid go... He's been shot. Yes. Yeah. So he knows there's no there's no covering that up. Yeah. There's no covering the, up the fact that I got shot, how I got shot, why I got shot. So, like, why he goes back to make the confession and then he's going to make a run for the border, I'm like, or you well, could have gone to the border and just called keys in the morning. Let's be honest. Right. Well, All but, of but, that's happening right here is really deeply psychological. Right. Well, but yeah. what I felt about the, the run for the border was more like, let me die on my own terms. Yeah. yeah. Like, I know I'm not going to make the border, but just let me run away and bleed out on my own because I don't want to go to the gas chamber. Well, it's the end Which, of Kill Bill. You know, she, yeah. he, he got the five fingers. Yeah, and then walks away. This palm of death. And then, all right, I it's time for me to take my five steps. Down. Mm. <laughs> yeah, except that he doesn't get, he doesn't even get that ending because because no. of the Hayes Code. Yes. Yeah, he can't just die. He can't die. even he win to, by dying. Yeah. yeah, he has to he has to face the music. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> oh, it's so juicy. It's, it's so, so very juicy. It is. Oh, it's one of my favorites. I love, I love a good con gone wrong. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. So this, like, this particular trope is like, you know, the quintessential con gone wrong noir trope that's what mm-hmm. i meant earlier is like i love it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i liked this particular take on it because they're both still just terrible people yes you know he may have started out okay but he kind of fell into it and it's clear like maybe had you never met her you never would have done something like this but you had the capacity for it you had yeah. a certain that's moral like, flexibility all yeah around. because you wanted to put your dick in it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm in love with you because I saw you. What? She doesn't even have Lana Turner's legs. Come on. You can't be in love with her. <laughs> <laughs> well, she smelled like honeysuckle. <laughs> it, her neighborhood smelled like honeysuckle. Yeah. Death smells like honeysuckle. Death smells like honeysuckle. <laughs> <laughs> it's the name of my memoir. <laughs> uh, that's a good name. It right? is. It is. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Or it's my birthday massacre cover mm. band. <laughs> um, I, I, I mentioned while we were watching it that I love 
the one thing I miss about our more enlightened times in terms of cigarette smoking is these days, cigarettes, the visual shorthand of cigarette smoking communicates a different message. Mm-hmm. But in those days, like, there's something about the way a character would just dangle a cigarette out of their mouth. The way just, they would smoke yeah. informed you about the character. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, because everybody smoked, and it would just be like, well, you know, this type of character smokes like this, this type of character smokes like this, and these days, what type of character smoke, and the and the shadings on that have been greatly reduced. Yeah, it mostly yeah. means like this person is is a, it's usually addressed in a way that it's like this person knows they shouldn't smoke, but they do it anyway. They're a rebel or whatever, or they're 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 antiquated, stuck in their ways. It's usually like. A curmudgeonly type of trait at or this point. Or they're clearly an unhealthy personality. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. we're going to have you smoke. Yeah, or it's, or it's a teenage rebel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the very few tropes in between. You know, very so few you exceptions. So you don't or, get the dangle anymore. Or, or mm-hmm. you're low income. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's also a class thing. Oh, like, very oh, much so. The middle class people still smoke. Because, you know, what do they care? <laughs> you yeah. know, it's... Yeah, it's completely different connotations. But we don't get that tough guy smoking anymore, and I kind of miss it. And there, there was so much communication just with the smoking in this particular movie. Yeah, like especially like the end, he takes out the the, the bloody, crumpled, bloody cigarette. <laughs> cigarette, and well, oh, yeah. Man. I mean, how many like how many times does he light, you know, the strike match, a match yeah. with his thumbnail, mm-hmm. and like the hell, the smoking is how he gets rid of Mister Medford. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what a great character. Yeah, but there Medford is so. But <laughs> Hallie and I were sitting there like. No, no, no. Oh, you're such an amateur. No, this is where you do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is where you do this. Like, Mr. the dude on the train who's like, have I ever seen you before? That's the part where every time he comes up with the way he could have seen you before, you go, yes, that could be it. That's why I look familiar to you, because it's not that you saw me on the train impersonating the dead man. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, the first two, it's like, okay, can you prove that you've ever, like, if people know that you don't, you get seasick, okay, definitely can't say I went fishing. Like, okay, I can't do this one, can't do that one. I might have cousins in Corvallis. There's a family resemblance. Like, all he had to do, and it would have mm-hmm. been, yeah, the car dealer, he looks a little bit like you. Done. Problem solved. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> do we do we cover the plot real quick? Nah, nah, we don't need to. Okay. <laughs> We're just assuming at this point the, the okay. This one's just... easy enough to get their hands on. Yeah, if they haven't watched easy. it, shame on them. Yeah, yeah. But, um, it, and in... it's quite famous yeah so. and in terms of structure it's it's so classic and like well here's where i'm admitting things now we have the flashback where you see the yeah. whole sordid tale and my voiceover that explains all along Which how was i was so foolish. very sunset boulevard yeah so, very, you know very and uh oh and the housekeeper let us all pause yeah. to remember the housekeeper yeah yes sass <laughs> yes well when will he be back i don't know when he's here is that good enough for you that, Does that help you out? If that's useful to you. Yeah, it is that, if that helps you out. Where's the living room? It's through there, but they keep the liquor cabinet locked. That's okay. I carry my, my own, own key. Keys. That is my favorite line in the whole movie. <laughs> and I, I I hope I have a chance to use it in real life. Oh. Like I know it never will. Except maybe at Omega Con. Oh, yeah, the, the bar's locked. That's okay. I got my own keys. <laughs> oh, yeah. I carry my own keys. Uh, I... Okay, so let's talk briefly about the ending. Is Barbara Stanwyck trying to play him even at the last minute, or did she really just have a moment of realization that she loves him? Eh, nah. She's <laughs> either she is either trying to play him one last time because she's like, I don't dare fire another shot, 
Because mm-hmm. I could easily see that, like, I've already drawn too much attention. Another shot is going to be bad for me. Mm-hmm. So I could see that. Or it's, okay, I have lost my nerve because I haven't had to actually shoot somebody before. Right. I've never had to willfully kill somebody. I mean, yeah. setting somebody up with pneumonia to die is willfully killing somebody. But it's not holding the pillow over the face and watching them struggle. You know? Right. It's neglect. Like, oops, I neglected my duty and, and well, that made to watch them die. Oh, oops. I left the windows open and I'm going to leave the room. Oh, dear. Oh. Oh, she might have done that herself because she was burning up. I had no idea. You know? Oh, I got so mad. The hat. Fitting the the hat hat for the veil in advance. You idiot. You deserve to be caught. Like, sit there and doodle. Yeah. And then burn it in the fireplace. Yay, he's about to die. Burn it in the fireplace. Yeah. You really need to get your yayas out. But, mm yeah. Really? Yeah. But, uh, so I, I feel like, I feel like she was just trying to play him one last time and then... Or accepting that she was done. That regardless... Oh, that character was not going to accept that. No, I don't buy that. I don't... Because I, no. I would almost have accepted, okay, this is the end of the line one way or the other. And just being like, okay, yep, hold me. Which made me kind of think of the Sin City, where oh, you know, the, yeah. the, the contract killer and yeah. he holds the woman close. She knows she's going to die. And... Then he does it. Yeah. And that's what that scene, you know, huh? for me was like, oh, yeah, it's a lot like that. So I kind of saw that because mm. Sin City informed my, oh, yeah, would color my opinion of that's an interpretation for that scene. It's mm. not a bad interpretation. That's not, you know, you know yeah. I, I, I t- totally agree with, I feel your interpretation is also valid of there's no way she accepted her own defeat. No. So, yeah. yeah but that's, but like, okay, so she's going to try to play him. She's already shot him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She chooses not to outright kill him. Like, she might just have come up with another plan. Like, when Fizzetti gets here, we can make look make it look like he shot you. Yeah. Um, and then we'll shoot him because it was self-defense. You, you we'll pin heard... it on Lola, or we'll say yeah. that he was blackmailing me, or like, yeah, or mm, you, you, I was being threatened. You heard the tapes, and you, you thought, uh-oh, I've met that guy. He's scary. I gotta come save her. I gotta come warn her, and you happen to be here at the right slash wrong time. Like, I could see that from from Phyllis. I could see her, like, having yet another fallback and mm-hmm. yet another fallback. Yeah. Because he's not wrong. Like, you always have somebody else to take care of the current problem. Yeah. You always sucker somebody else yeah. in. I like that she did admit it. Oh, yeah. That she's like, yep, yep. you're right. I never loved you. You were a means to an end. Mm-hmm. Right. She, yep, I was gonna get rid of you. And I... I, well, no, because she doesn't necessarily say she was going to get rid of him. She tells him she was using the guy to get rid of the daughter so that yeah. she would make sure she did get everything and yeah. that the daughter couldn't say, couldn't, I'm like, pretty sure she killed my mother. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the daughter is going to be in the way. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's for so the inheritance could, or... So that she could sue because yeah. the daughter, if she sues, the daughter is going to testify. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And the the one man on the train, like, if that's all you've got... Mm-hmm. That's not going to be enough. Mm-hmm. In now, granted, for the rest of their life, they can never be together, mm-hmm. and to, unless they like both quit their jobs and move to Europe to or to you know Argentina, right? And, which, right. Or do the body heat thing? Oh yeah, you know we started seeing each other after this whole tragic affair, and 
she's beautiful, right? Of course I'm putting my dick in that crazy. Like, <laughs> I, I actually really liked how they handled that body. <laughs> of course I'm putting my dick like, in Like, have you thing. seen her? Come on. <laughs> I'm banging the grieving widow. Why wouldn't I not? <laughs> yes, put spectacles on her. That will change the fact that she's still the most gorgeous woman you've ever seen. Um... Okay, we have not briefly mentioned, by the way, listeners, Edith Head. Yes. Edith Head. Oh, and like her touch. She drapes so well. Yeah. I mean, and there's that one secretary suit with the little points. Yeah, which I think I've seen in other Edith Head costumed films. You know, something very similar on another secretary. Because as soon as I saw it, I'm like... I've seen that outfit before. Oh, yeah. Or I've, you know, I mean, styles are iconic, you know, they, mm-hmm. they repeat, but it's just like, I'm that I've probably seen this in another film that you had costumed. Oh, mm-hmm. that one high waisted pants. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. Very that, nice. That dress that she had with the, you know, the floral top and the mm-hmm. black mm-hmm. skirt. Oh, God, that was gorgeous. Uh, listeners, there is a, um, there is a disc out of Roman holiday. That's a beautiful restoration. I think, I picked it up in a cheap bin for $5 of Roman Holiday with Audrey Hepburn, but one of the extras on that is a short mini-documentary on Edith Head. You should seek it out, because yeah. it was really good and informative, and I found out things that I did not know about Edith Head, and it's always just great to look at her, because she looked magnificent with her dark bob and her dark glasses and her very confident postures of, mm-hmm. yes, I'm Edith. I mean, it's fucking head. Uh-huh. And she knew how to suck up to stars. Oh, she did. Oh, she, she she would suck up to stars, so stars would be like, no, I want Edith to costume me because she makes me look good. And it's mm-hmm. true. She made everybody look magnificent. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I I kept thinking uh, while watching this movie, I, I've seen this movie dozens of times, but only just recently I saw the movie that Barbara Stanwyck made just prior to this called Lady of Burlesque, ah. which was written by Gypsy Rose Lee. This is an interesting film. Oh, it's a, shit. It, it's this weird little backstage comedy, drama, mystery thing. Well, and everybody, yeah. okay, if you don't know this, Gypsy Rose Lee, listeners, is a famous burlesque star. The musical Gypsy is her life story. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And so she she made a movie <laughs> with starring Barbara Sandwick and it's this wacky bizarre thing and a big cast of women in weird costumes and uh some of the costumes are just bonkers and I kind of loved it but you know you could tell that the line just wasn't quite as flattering on Barbara Sandwick than when Edith Head is working on her clothes. Because Barbara Stanwyck is kind of a boxy lady yeah. for that. She's angular. She's very angular. She doesn't have a tiny waist. She, Her face has so much character to it, which is kind of why I mm. love her in this era. Because a lot of the women had a very same missionness. And I mean even nowadays yeah. there is. But she she had that Roman nose and kind not of Not much of a chin. Yeah, not much of a chin and kind of a and for for that snarl. era. And you know, for, look, for, for a face that's so round, yeah. a very hard face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and but you're right, she doesn't yeah. she had for being thin, she didn't have curves. She wasn't right. she didn't have naturally a figure. That was what I was gonna say about that the the dress with the floral top and the skirt is they did that um the curve gentle curve yeah. on, on the which 
I've just bought a ton of clothes that do that because even though I have the curves, it makes it even curvier and slimmer. And I saw that and I went, oh, they use that on her and she's skinny. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, and it made it even look better. Oh, and yeah. she does the thing where it's a pantsuit where you make it tight around the waist and you blouse the top and you have the nice draping in the in the slacks and suddenly look you have hips and you have and you're mm-hmm. and you have breasts and you you look a lot more curvy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she oh, she was such a brilliant customer. Yeah, and and so <sighs> I mean, I wasn't disparaging Barbara Stanwyck's looks at all. Oh, she, no, and, no. and she's a wonderful performer. It's like when she's on screen and she's just magnetic and she's like pure yeah. sex. But Edith, there's just Edith there's Edith no comparison to Barbara Stanwyck and then Barbara Stanwyck in a film where she's costumed by Edith Head. Right. It's just... Right. She makes her that much more stunning. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was, the difference is remarkable. Yeah. So, yeah. It... it just really interesting, uh, but dear listeners, if you can if you can find a copy of Lady Bur- of Burlesque, it's a weird experience. Trust me, it's really. <laughs> Wendy, I need to show it to you. Uh, this sounds amazing. Have... Well, like it needs to be a two. It needs to be a double feature with Gypsy. Yeah, really, it does. Can we do that for Xanadu? That'd be awesome. Yeah, we, oh. yeah. Let's do that someday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's see. Have you ever seen yeah. Gypsy? I've I think I've seen Gypsy. parts of Gypsy. What? I know. What? Yeah. Oh God. Uh we'll we'll we'll, we'll, we'll Wendy's we'll gonna Wendy's gonna smack us both. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, I know I she mean, is. Gypsy Yeah. Gypsy's <laughs> Gypsy well and also because Mama Rose is an iconic character of majestic, epic, problematic yeah. feminist fucking proportions. <laughs> yeah, th- that, that much I know. <laughs> like, like, it's one of the few classic musicals that is female-driven. Mm-hmm. The the central driving character is a female and her wants and desires. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a problematic character, but it's also fascinating. And it's got some of the most classic and iconic music of the classic musicals but yeah, we're up but, but we're that's up. that's not double indemnity but that's not double yeah. indemnity oh and my god that score yeah uh, that score Miklos, was great Miklos Rosa uh dum some of his finest work uh dum, dum, this dum. movie was nominated for seven Oscars and one of them was uh Miklos Rosa rightly rightly so and of course Fred McMurray who Fred you, McMurray, you know, yeah. in my in my generation you're like the warm genial father figure oh, oh lord well there's and a... he is not good at being he's when once he kills the guy and he needs to start quote acting natural he, he acts the his, least natural his whole neck and shoulders just lock in and like suddenly he's unable to turn his head all he can do is sort of talk out of the side of his mouth without even shifting his like he so, suddenly uh, became Walter. Merch. Yeah. <laughs> Did you want to turn and face me? I no. will turn my whole body to face you. I'm being completely casual. Yeah, it's almost like one of those things where it's like, do I check the trivia and see that he was like in a back brace because he'd had an accident? No, like, no, 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 I really, I, you know, but it's like, it was so rigid. I'm like, yeah. I could see that being a thing where they're like, it'll be fine. You'll just look like you're not acting. <laughs> you are acting the least natural. Don't worry about the fact that you can't move your fucking neck. Like, that's what it looked like. <laughs> it really was. Fred McMurray had a neck injury. No, he didn't. Uh, Fred McMurray uh, was this very conservative actor. And yes, by and large, almost all of his career, he played good guys, kind of fatherly guys, wholesome yeah, he's warm and likable. Two of his most notable roles, both for Billy Wilder, 
those are the two that he's kind of down and dirty for. And so it's this one. And when he comes back and does the apartment. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh God. Yeah, yeah. As the boss in the apartment. The, and he, yeah. Cause he, he is a jerk. He radiates sleaze. He really, oh. the way, the way he's checking Barbara Stranwick out, the way he's, yeah. he's not, he's not yeah, baby. flirting. Like, I think you're pretty. He's like flirting. Like, I, I feel like I'm going to take you to bed. Yeah. I feel like you're cheap and you'd do that. Yeah. yeah. He's like, I took one look at you. You came out because you'd been sunbathing, so I've already decided that you're... Well, and to be fair, the fact that she, she comes did that on... within visual... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean... And wearing a towel. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, oh, that crosses a lot of lines for that yeah. age. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how much, how, much, how much of that is just, that's who she is? Like, I don't give a fuck. Because, like, it's 2017, and, and if I... the doorbell rang and I decided to answer it in a towel, you would be justified in going... Um, what the actual fuck? Mm-hmm. My, my my fiance answered the door today in his sleep pants and full bathrobe, and the FedEx guy was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You, you couldn't the... see any skin. It was hilarious. Like a bathrobe. Like, like answering in a bathrobe, I would be like, it's 2017, whatever, I've got no job. Right. Oh, I've like, answer, answering in a towel. Yeah, yeah, no, but like... I'm saying, like, even a bathrobe was enough to make, you know, somebody like, and it's a man in a in a bathrobe and pants and it's 2017 so like, not even old. a woman in a bathrobe or a towel in the 19 <laughs> when was this 40s 1944 yeah 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 oh i'm going to totally come within view of a, a stranger at the door a strange a towel. man mhm it's like yeah. um wow that's mm, that's saying a lot yeah what's all and, this that you've got well, written oh, down oh there's a ton of stuff so uh if billy wilder was just hitting a million throughout this whole decade and so like the following film he did after this was lost weekend oh shit yeah <laughs> so this movie was uh nominated for seven oscars like i said one of them was best picture and uh billy wilder was also up for an oscar and it neither won and um oh goodness now i can't remember which movie actually won that year but um oh i'm gonna i'm gonna get it here yeah no maybe i didn't write it down bummer anyway the the director of the movie that won that year oh he was walking down the aisle billy wilder was kind of uh bitter he tripped him uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i love you billy oh wilder. that's that is salty damn which, which is which is hilarious because the following year when lost weekend was up against the that director's movie for that year, Lost Weekend, won. And so, you know, Billy Wilder got kind of his <laughs> Oscar that way. Da, 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 da. Okay, um, brief side note. You know how sometimes you think about if I had a time machine, like, what would I do? And you always think of going to famous things. I would go to the Oscars and I would travel back in time and buy all of those clothes. Yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Right? But yeah. wouldn't it be fun to just go to the Oscars, like, for each of those years and just, like, sit at a, sit at a table and be like, I'm just here with... You know, I did look, there's Billy Wilder. I'm going to go to the bar and I'm going to have a drink with Billy Wilder. <laughs> I'm going to drink some fucking whiskey with Billy Wilder. <laughs> uh, you know what? I would go to parties with Carrie Fisher. Oh, Fuck yes. yes. Yeah. Yes, I would. Anyway, but sorry yes. to get us off topic. That's okay. That's because okay. I, so many you people. told that story about the Oscars. I'm like, yeah. I would fucking love to party yeah. with Billy Wilder. Uh-huh. Yeah. Although he was kind of a notorious for being a little hard to work with, actually a lot hard to work with, but but you know that doesn't mean he wouldn't drink whiskey and be fun to that's shoot true. the shit with. That's true. I'm not. I don't need to work with a man. I yeah. just I feel like he could snark. 
I feel oh, like oh true. yeah, it's true. It's true. I feel like he would like yeah, he was kind of bar chat with Billy Wilder would be like mm-hmm, yeah. quite a thing. Yeah. So part of the reason that this the dialogue was so snappy is because Wilder wrote the script with Raymond Chandler. Oh, oh that makes so much sense now. <laughs> yeah, I missed that. They hated each other oh shit they hated working with each other but they they both kind of recognized it's like shit we're doing well together uh, god damn it and, and, god, and then we're oh my god that line you wrote is brilliant well clearly the only thing for me to do is come up with something more brilliant to answer shit that one was good too god damn it well let, let me backtrack the the original book that this was based on was by a a gentleman named Kane, James M. Kane, who we've talked about on the podcast before because he also wrote Postman Always Rings Twice uh, and Mildred Pierce. Uh, yeah. Uh, right? Juicy, juicy, juicy. Uh, and so, um, first of all, Chandler agreed to work on this even though he thought Kane was a hack. So, <laughs> so uh, they, they called up Chandler to, to help write this script and um, he was going to, uh, I'll only do it for $150 a week or, you know, something that he thought was a princely sum. And the, uh, one of the producers says, we were thinking more like 750 a week. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> that's okay. A, that's a dumbass producer. <laughs> By the way. Or, or dumbass Chandler really lowballing himself. And the producer's like, oh, we can't, we can't have you do that. <laughs> also, we do need to... No, you're going to eventually find out. No, we should just pay you. Yeah, we should just pay you because Wilder's bitch to work with. So the two of them just didn't get along. And Chandler's, there were days when he didn't show up on set. And he's like, I'm not going to show up because Billy Wilder is so disrespectful for me. And he had like this litany of of things that bothered him about Billy Wilder. Wow. One of them being, he sticks his baton in my eyes, which I go, wait, yeah, why what? did Billy Wilder have a baton on set? <laughs> right? What is was this, he doing? Is this a euphemism? Was he doing? <laughs> well, it was the hate. You know. <laughs> uh, but like, like what, was he just like, tap, 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 go, go, go. Like, was he <laughs> conducting the technician? No, maybe he had like a writing crop. That, no! <laughs> no! <laughs> Suddenly I'm picturing Otto Preminger, right? Yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that, no, it is not acceptable. <laughs> not acceptable. Not acceptable. Uh, Wilder's fairly similar to that, actually. Uh. Yeah. So, um, and and so the the day the big day that uh, Chandler didn't show up on set and like turned it. Now th- these are my demands, and I demand an apology. And the producers are going, oh god, Wilder's never going to apologize. This was like the one time in Wilder's career where he actually just went, no, we need Chandler. And he went apologized and decided to be a little nicer. Wow. (laughs) Damn. Um, So Chandler, uh, also during this, um, he really, really, really wanted to rewrite the dialogue from the book. And Wilder was going, no, we're going to use the book the dialogue mostly in the book as written and and Chandler goes no no you can't do that that it's not going to sound right and not that Chandler really knew much about making movies Wilder definitely did but Wilder kind of set up an experiment he took one of the scenes that Chandler wrote and then some of the dialogue from the book uh found some actors to just read both of the scenes and he goes oh shit he's right Chandler's dialogue works better 
because it, because it's written to be said. It's written to be said. Yeah, instead of read and mm-hmm. hurting heard in your mind. Yeah, I mean with you, with a with a monologue or description. You write you write differently, and it's one of the things having done audiobooks, like sometimes reading shit aloud that people are just like, oh, if you had just said this aloud, you would know. Yeah. That nobody would ever say this. Yeah. yeah. Because it's, you can't get these words out in this order. Yeah, right. it, it it doesn't it doesn't flow. It doesn't sound well, good. Well, and, and because you're also writing, you're writing to give a lot of information that you would normally get visually. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking to somebody, so the, yeah, the way you write. So no, that's that's brilliant. And I love Chandler for being like, no, that's not. People don't talk like that. What that it's worth so simple. Yes, yes. <laughs> Trippingly on the tongue. Trippingly on the tongue. <laughs> what that twar so simple. What what are you what are you hanging up on here? <laughs> what what does he eventually say? It's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> I need to rewatch that scene. I, I need I, to watch that the whole, whole movie. Again. That whole movie. Like, oh, yeah. I, dear listeners. Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar. God bless that. Arden film. Ehrenreich. Ar- 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 Arden? Arlen? Ar- Ar- Arden, I think. Ar- anyway. Ehrenreich. Ehrenreich. Yeah. Ehrenreich. Oh, God. So brilliantly funny. So funny. So, so funny. funny. Anyway. So anyway, um, now James M. Cain, you know, being the author of the book, um, absolutely loved what they did with the script. Good. He loved the adaptation and he went to see it several times. Good. And, and, and the changes that they made uh, over and above what his book did. And it's like, I thought of that. It would have been in the book. That's amazing. It's like, oh, yeah. That's always really nice to hear when it's like the author appreciates yeah, the like, transformative right. work. Well, and also that an author appreciates, of course you have to make changes. Right. Yeah. Yes. That it can't be exactly like you wrote it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the book was actually based on a real case. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, James M. Cain used to be a journalist in New York City. Uh-huh. And he based it on a trial he once attended. Uh, so, this this happened in 1927 in Queens. And a woman named Bruce Snyder... Um, had a boyfriend named Judd Gray, and they basically conspired to kill her husband, Albert. And But before doing that, they took out a big insurance policy with a double indemnity clause. And so the, the policy was for $48,000, but paid out double if death by violent means <laughs> was... That's so What smart. did they do? So... Oh God! So, first of all, I got I, there's so many weird things about this. So, Judd Gray, the boyfriend, was a corset salesman that she had met, and so they they had they started an affair, and she started having ideas of killing her boyfriend. So, I don't know how she met the insurance salesman that they conned into uh, surreptitiously getting taking out the uh-huh. the policy. And, and forging parts of it so they had the policy on file. They then, I think it was seven times they attempted to kill the guy and it never worked. Oh, <laughs> wow. <my> God. <laughs> um, or at least, and this is according to the boyfriend, it's like Ruth tried to kill him several times and he always survived or something happened. And so I want to see like a dark comedy about that. Yes. But um, finally in March 1927... The the Judd Gray and and Ruth Snyder uh, garroted the husband and uh, stuffed his nose full of chloroform rags and killed him. 
And then they tried to dress up the scene like it had been a violent robbery and so on and so forth, and then reported it to the police. And the police, being police, investigated, and uh, they found some of the stolen stuff inside the house hidden. Which... Wow! I'm sorry, I'm rolling my eyes, which <laughs> right? makes for great radio. But I feel like the silence like spoke for itself. Like oh I think God. you can hear my eyes rolling yeah. so far back yeah. into my head that they went off into the stratosphere. Yes. If you what heard, the hell? If you heard Max whining, he's like, wow! Like the, the, the Dude, eyes rolling. Dude, you're so dumb. So, so yes, they were quickly identified as murderers, and they were convicted. And so, um, Bruce Snyder was put into Sing Sing and executed by Damn. electrocution. Um, she was. Well, here's an, the the story of her execution goes like this. Um, the New York Daily News, this was a huge, you know, sensational crime. So, of course, they wanted photos of the execution. Not that the prison would allow that. So the New York Daily News um, said, well, all of our photojournalists are um, known by the prison, so we can't send them in because they, the, the prison will just throw them out. So they contacted one of the guys in Chicago who worked for, I believe it was the Sun. No, he, he worked for the Tribune. Uh, Tom Howard. And so they brought in this guy from Chicago. They put a camera in his shoe with a tripwire up his pants, snuck him into the prison. He witnessed the execution and positioned himself so his toe was pointing towards the electric chair and got the first photo of a U.S. execution. That is stone cold. Mm Mm-hmm. Holy shit. So I agree, Max. Yes. That's, that's fucked up, It's Max. very, very distressing. So um, I, there, the photo show, it, it's a famous photo. Um, it, it, it's kind of blurry because, you know, it's a camera it, in the shoe. It's a camera in the shoe. But, uh, like, there's a Guns N' Roses album where there's a big blow-up of the, the photo with the band in front of it, and it, it's referenced here and there. There's a Time article about how the photo was obtained and I think it's even yeah. more fucked up that it was of her execution. Her. That makes it even more fucked up. Of course up. this mm-hmm. just makes me think of the musical Chicago. Yeah, oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Everything goes back to musicals, guys. Yeah. Just everything. Saying. Everything. Totally. Totally. But yeah, I also immediately thought of Chicago. So yeah. Um that's uh that's where that base story came from. Um the guy, going back to the movie, the guy who played the husband who was eventually murdered was Tom Powers, who was a uh, Broadway actor. He had been in several movies, kind of in the silent era, but he just never really made it in movies. But after showing up here, he kind of had a revival in his film career and had a Yay, bunch of good parts oh, after he's, 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 he's fun he's to watch. Nice and, Bitchy. Yeah, he's, he's so grumpy. He's, he's grumpy, grumpy and just like, ow. Uh, let's see. The the house they were in, the, at least the exteriors, still there today. It's 6301 Quebec Drive Oh, in Los Angeles. That'd be fun to drive by. Yeah. Well, there there are so many houses in Los Angeles. That have been, yeah. So many places. But it's it's such a striking looking house. That Spanish style that so many people were yes. crazy about a couple of years ago. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I... As I was looking at that, I'm like, that reminds me of the house I grew up in. I mean, you know, yeah. the house I grew up in is much smaller, 
but it's that Spanish style with the stucco and mm-hmm. the, the, you know, that sort of look on the garages and, mm-hmm. 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 and tuck under and it. Yeah. 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 Uh, let's see what else. <laughs> oh, here's another fun thing. So David O. Selznick being David O. Selznick. Oh, Max. Hello. Yes, I know. He's very distressed. David O. Selznick, being David O. Selznick, had a competing uh, film during this year where he put, took out an ad campaign, and um, he the, the ad campaign had uh, byline, Since You Went Away, which is the name of the movie, Since You Went Away are the four most important words in movies since Gone with the Wind. And for whatever reason, Billy Wilder got pissed off by this, so Billy Wilder took out an ad that said, Double indemnity are the two most important words in movies since Broken Blossoms, which was a reference to <laughs> another movie several years ago. And then Hitchcock, being Hitchcock, was really amused by this. And he goes, the two most important words in movies today are Billy Wilder. And he put it in an ad that followed up Billy Wilder's ad because he was having a tip with Selznick at the same time. <laughs> Pettiness is delightful. This is why I want to go back to Hollywood right? Golden Age. Just like to just be like, all oh, y'all the are bitches. Yeah, y'all yeah. are so snarky. That is some tea, right? <laughs> tea just, and shade and everything. Like I just want to sit on the lot and be like, I just want to oh watch God, this just, shit go down. Yeah. Oh my God. Or I could get a job as a secretary and just be like, tell me, tell me. Yeah, so juicy. So juicy. <laughs> Did you have more interesting? Oh, I've got, I, I mean, we've, we've talked about almost everybody else involved in this movie pretty thoroughly mm-hmm. through other episodes. Because, you know, we talked about Billy Wilder during Sunset Boulevard episode and Edward G. Robinson. We talked a bit about him <sighs> in Key Largo. I love him so God, much. Yes. I, Chandler, we had a whole series of... What I love about Edward G. Robinson is he's such an interesting face and he does cold and hard so great. But he, like the best actors, he turns on a dime and he's so fucking likable in this. Yes. Yes. He's got such, you know, they they say, yeah, under that gruff exterior, you've got, you're a big cream puff, you know, heart of gold. Like, and that's, he's just a caring, compassionate person. But boy, he's so, I mean, I think that's what makes the best villains. Yeah. villains is you can... You can sense the the person underneath them, like because when you do the stone cold thing, it's just like, well, you're just a killing machine. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. the reason why you get terrified of things is like that you can you can understand it, that you can see it from yeah. their point of view. You can mm-hmm. believe that it could be when you get their motivation beyond. You can, I just like doing this. Well, and also the whole idea of like you know crazy psycho killer. You're gonna be like you're a fucking crazy psycho killer, but the whole it's just the guy next door. It could just it could be the person sitting next to me on the couch. What if? All of y'all are crazy psycho killers, and I don't know. Mm-hmm. Ah. As opposed to a six foot tall albino monk, you're gonna notice. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's very true. That's that's my go to of that like... is your go to. <laughs> We're going back to that well, aren't we, Wendy? <laughs> well, it's just like oh, such a perfect visual of like, ooh, I'm a crazy psycho killer. Yeah, I noticed. You know why? Because you're a six foot tall albino monk walking the streets <laughs> of New York. I think I noticed that you might be ha- like. I don't know, crazy. It's kind of like that era of Godzilla comics that Marvel had where Godzilla donned a trench coat and a fedora and came. <laughs> I'm not kidding. No, I know. I know it's that happened. Why. I know it happened. And he fought crime. Yeah. Uh, so, God. Yeah, and Edward G. Robinson, you know, apparently just a darling sweetheart of a man. Um, there is this movie he made 
several years prior to this. He was quite a bit younger, but it was still in his gangster era. But he, it's it's a movie he did called Scarlet Street, which he plays this this soft, very shy, very submissive, milk toast man who is easily. Uh, manipulated by this blonde woman he meets, and, and she just says oh this is my meal ticket because I can manipulate him any way I want and seeing Edward G. Robinson play a role like that is fascinating and we're totally going to watch Scarlet Street at some point Awesome. just saying because it's pretty pretty great But uh, so Fred McMurray we haven't seen any movies by prior to in this podcast and same with Barbara Stanwyck this is our first Barbara Stanwyck film in this series. I is thought it? we did one for the Heights. No, no, I don't think we ever did. Oh, okay. Yeah, Stanwyck, I, I don't think we've ever seen her. She's an interesting actress. She's a fascinating yeah. Act- actress. Yeah, she's um, yeah, like, The like Lady so many Eve of... and Sorry yeah. Wrong Number and Strange yeah. Love of Martha Ivers. Uh, uh, the Big Valley, the TV show. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she's interest. She's an interesting yeah. actress because, you know, she was clearly, I mean, and she's a star, but yeah. she's one of those stars where it's like, you're not, you don't look, your your vibe is not the typical vibe, no. your look is not the typical look, you're, you're not clearly an ingenue, you're not clearly a femme fatale, you're not clearly any of those things, you're wonderfully funny in Lady Eve, mm-hmm. like, it's She's just fascinating because you you enjoy watching her, but it's not the engaging charisma mm-hmm. of yeah. other stars. Like, yeah, I just, I find her interesting to watch yeah, because for, I, I, I enjoy watching her. And at the same time, I'm always sort of watching I, her from a remove because she doesn't yeah. I feel engage like me in the same way. She's compelling ways. because she works really fucking hard at it. Mm-hmm. as opposed to having that natural magnetism. Mm. I mean, she still comes by some of it naturally, obviously. Yeah. But I mean, it's like she works hard to sell the character she is in that moment because she's not the stereotype of any character that she plays. Right. It's kind of how I feel. Right. So like mm-hmm. when she steps into that role, she has to know I am this person, you know, mm-hmm. like instead of just, well, of course you are because you have that look. Yeah, you know, you know where's right. like you you watch Alana Turner. It's like, well, of course that's who you are. Like, yeah. you know, I I figured that out the moment you stepped Lana on Lana Turner as a femme fatale is like, yeah, yeah, yeah obviously, because look at you. Yeah, but, 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 but Barbara Stanwyck doesn't can... radiate sultry in the same way. Yeah, yeah, like when not knowing anything about this film, I you know when she comes out and I'm like, it might not be her idea. Like mm-hmm. you know, she may just she may be just a lonely person that you know is in a bad marriage and he might like, you know, I'm like, I, I can tell where this is going, but I'm like, it might be all his idea, you know, but it, it clearly, you know, very quickly clears that up for me. But I'm just like, yeah, I don't know for sure what her angle is going to be because she doesn't just, Oh, well, obviously this is who you I are. I mean, look at her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, look at you for house. But she, she was, Barbara Stanwyck was a very versatile actress because of mm-hmm. this, because she didn't fit a type. Mm-hmm. But she, uh, she, she started out as a dancer at 17 and just kind of worked her way up through the, the industry. And um, at, at one point in her career, um, slightly after this, you know, she became known as the best actress who never won an Oscar. She was nominated four times and never won. Ah. And eventually got an honorary Oscar in 1982. 
Which she got a consolation prize. She got a consolation prize. But uh, John Travolta handed it off to her and he was like, <laughs> Barbara Stanwyck, huh? <laughs> You're to Oscar. Uh, That's he adorable. Was very happy. So, yeah, um, 1944, which is when this was made, um, Barbara Stanwyck, uh, according to the U.S. government, was the highest paid woman in America. Huh. Wow. Mm hmm. Huh. Yeah. Um, you know, well-regarded as an actress and, you know, worked throughout her career. Had a, I think she spent like 59, 60 years working yeah. in the film industry. Was, and she went to TV. She was like, yeah. I'll take work. Yeah, tons of TV. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I got no bill. Um, I am not above getting a regular paycheck. <laughs> yes. I like money. <laughs> I like I like eating food on occasion. <laughs> I like fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> uh, she apparently lived next door to Joan Crawford for a while. And <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> wow! Oh. To, to, like I said, I want a time machine to be a fly on that garden wall. Like <laughs> holy shit! Can I just apply to be your gardener for a while? I just want to see what goes down here. Mm-hmm. I feel like they had to have had beef somehow. <laughs> right? Like, your rose bushes are too high. Like, I feel like Either that, that or, or they were they looked at each other and went, kindred spirit, let's just hang over the wall and bitch. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh my God, how about that, Billy Wilder? You're not kidding, Missy. What an ass. I know, right? God damn it. But how do you feel about Greta Garbo? <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? Oh, could have, could, yeah. Oh, I want time machine technology. According to Christina Crawford, there was at least one point in their lives where Barbara Stanwyck scaled their fence and like stayed with the Crawfords for several days. She during the time she had she was uh, married to Frank Fay, which didn't go well. Uh, like their marriage ended spectacularly when they got into a huge fight and he threw their kid into a pool. Uh, Dang. Yeah, not good. Not good. Um, there are some theories that A Star is Born was based on their marriage. Oh. But uh, Crawford and Stanwyck knew each other from like long before when they were both single and you uh-huh. know, working in, in Hollywood. And so she climbed so, the fence to be like, I'm going to just stay with I'm just going to crash here. It's cool. My, cool. Hu- my husband's yeah. an ass. Yeah. I feel like Joan Crawford is like, I get it. Come on. <laughs> Men are dumb. Men are, Men Men are useless. Men are dumb. <laughs> They're good for procreation only. <laughs> when you're looking for pleasure, you come to my house. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently she was one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet in Hollywood. Um, Marilyn R- Monroe, when uh, they worked together in a movie called Clash by Night. Huh. And Marilyn Monroe was like, she was just the nicest person to me. Nobody else treated me really well. You no, know, yeah, everybody else treated her like a whore. Yeah, pretty much. And Stanwick was just genuinely nice. I'm distressed yeah. by that too, Max. Yeah, that that worries me, Max. I know, I why, know. Why would it, why would you be mean to Marilyn? Monroe? Why would you? Oh, she seemed like such a sweetheart. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I can't understand if I was working with her and the problems that would come up. Oh up, yeah. That eventually, I'd be like, "Honey, you got some issues that you need to solve, but I do not have the time for this bullshit." Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you, you know, that's different. Yeah, that's different. But, yeah. but hi, I've just met you. I don't Your like tits it. are too big, you're blonde, you're clearly stupid. Hmm. Yeah. Right. yeah. Stupid all the way to the bank, asshole. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. So, there, the, uh, there are so many Hollywood. things we could talk about. about but know, we should wrap, but she's not in this movie. We should wrap this one up. We should. We should. Uh, just quick, Fred McMurray, 
you know, also, it, it's interesting to me that both Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck were, like, really, really conservative people, like, like really, really Republican during this time. Um, uh, so that, seeing them both be in a movie like this, they really had to get talked into oh, yeah. playing these two roles. Because conservative in that time was wholesome. Very, yeah. you know, very... wholesome American values because we're America. Anti communism. Like, like, well, we mm-hmm. want you to play sleazy people. Mm-hmm. Oh, but won't that damage my reputation? And it, it almost kind of did. For for McMurray, like, uh, there's this great story of uh, he went to Disneyland with his family at, in like the early 1960s. He had just done the apartment. Oh, and. Uh, he he was walking around Disney with his family, and this woman came up to him, and she goes, "Are you Fred McMurray?" He said, "Yes, yes, I am." And she hits him with her purse. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I took my family to the apartment, and that wasn't a Disney movie. He goes, "No, ma'am, no, it was not." <laughs> God, it, it seems like there was just—I I mean, I, I know it still happens today, yeah. but it seems like back then. People didn't know how to divorce actors from their roles. Yeah, oh, yeah. if you're yeah. playing that, you must be that. It's well, like, but also if no, you look acting, at acting, come on. The press <laughs> machine of the time was very yeah. clearly selling actors as personalities, right? Absolutely. Which, in a way, that does not happen at this time. No, <laughs> it you know, which going back to Hail Caesar was like watching when they're they're oh, we're going to fix up these two stars. You two are going to go to this premiere together, and then you're going to go to dinner afterwards. We're oh, going to yeah. make you into a couple. I don't, you it's know, the Judy it's like, Garland. Yeah, it's like, oh, I forgot that they did that. Like, yeah. You know, you, you never really forget, but it's like, it's kind of put it out of my mind. I'm like, yeah. that's right. They totally manufactured, like, every aspect of their social lives. Uh-huh. And it's yeah. just incredible, because that just does not happen in that way anymore. No, no. I mean, mostly, that, that mostly because in the age of social media, you can't get away with it. Well, you have, I mean, that has to be a hard sell. It crumbled a long time before that oh, yeah. because it kind of crumbled with the studio system. It, There's still a little right. bit of that, like in the eighties with like the teen generation coming up. Well, I mean, that it, was kind it, of the death. But, but I mean, even if you tried to do it now, you wouldn't be able to, unless right. you were like, 100% we are committed to pretending this is our lives. Right. Well, you could, you would not be able to sneak around with your real boyfriend. People it don't. It would come out. <laughs> that's not, that's not what you need to sell people on anymore. No. Right. right. No. Like you need to sell them on like either being like, I'm just going to not let you know about me or, you know, like, um, I'm, you know, I'm funny. I go on all the talk shows and I, mm-hmm. and I sing songs or I do this. Like you sell your personality in different ways. You're still selling yourself and marketing right. yourself, yeah. but it's, you're, it, you're not trying to, it's not, it's not being manufactured in the same way. And I think it's a little bit because when people realized how much they were being sold, these, these manufactured yeah. relationships, they're like, uh-uh. it didn't have the same, it, the the audience no longer appreciated it. Yeah, right. I don't I don't want to see that you're happily married to someone that you don't. What? No, no. no. What I just need to see is you. You know, you went on Colbert and I want to funny. See, I want to see Jennifer Lawrence telling me all about. And then I had Mexican food, and I you know shit my pants like because like, <laughs> yeah. that's the kind of person she is. She's like no holds barred. Mm-hmm. She makes a lot of people go, oh my god, you are so normal, and I feel so much better about. My life, you know, <laughs> not like your life is worse than mine somehow, Jennifer Lawrence, with all your money. But, but you know, remember, she still has a publicist who is oh, like yes. saying, 
this is working for you. So just keep being it, honest. Even if that is truly who she is, yeah. she still has a publicist going, this is okay. Keep yeah. Doing yeah. And, and not pulling her back and going, you do that again. You do no more talk shows. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, so there is still, it's all about getting the there is job. always damage control. Cause that's what PR is. But you know, for given definitions of damage, whatever that may be, but mm-hmm. all right. So just <clears throat> super quick wrap up about Fred McMurray because I love this little factoid about him. You know, for, first of all, he was um, I think he was born and raised in Illinois or something like that. But he, like at age five, he moved up to Wisconsin. So he went to school and went to college in like Waukesha. Okay, you know, so he's super white bread. Yep, you know? yep, <laughs> and. Uh, he started out as a professional musician. He played saxophone huh. in in an orchestra fronted by Bing Crosby at one point. Wow! And and so he and then he uh, like recorded a voice track on a song and like recorded a single or something. And yeah, it did okay. But uh, at some point there, he transitioned to doing a little bit of Broadway, and then he went Hollywood. And he just slowly worked his ranks way up the ranks through Paramount. Huh. I'm saxophone player. Huh. Huh. Who knew? <laughs> huh. Yeah. Okay, then. That is interesting. I'm mm-hmm. glad you shared that. Yeah. That's kind of the... the it's so different from the, the normal uh, story you usually hear. It's like, he started in Broadway and then worked his way up. You know, that's yeah. so... Yeah. Oh, and uh, artist C.C. Beck, who created Captain Marvel, based Captain Marvel's look on Fred McMurray. Huh. So that's it. That's what I got for for, uh, trivia. Uh, Do we have anything else to say about Double Indemnity? It's it's still such a great movie. It is. I can watch it over. It just clips along. It's so beautifully filmed. I love that tete-a-tete that they have when they first meet, where it's like line, 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 line. And it's like, oh, that tears it. And off it goes. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, the so dialogue. Snappy. Snap, snip, snap, yeah. crackle pop. The actuarial chart monologue. Oh, by yes. Edward G. Ross. Oh, my God. Isn't that favorite glorious? favorite thing in that movie. I, I, you know, as an accounting nerd that almost went into actuary. You've got science. the ball. Let's see what you do with it. Well, you fumbled it in you at the end zone, then you handed it off to the wrong person, and you did a 40-yard loss, (laughs) and now it'd be great if you could pick it up so you could do something with it, because you've just completely screwed the pooch, because if you actually knew what you were doing, and you'd ever (laughs) read a table on statistical analysis of suicides, then you would... (laughs) Yeah, and then he just goes off in all the different ways, and this is not one of them. You would jump from the... You would jump in front of the train, not... Off the back of it, going fifteen miles per hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You would know you would not die. <laughs> no, right. this is clearly not a suit. You completed it. Well, and and the way the snap of next time I'll rent a tuxedo. Yeah, <laughs> yes. After he makes that comment about, oh, I didn't realize. Are you? Oh, are you uncomfortably warm today? Like, oh, and the are you drinking this? <laughs> drinks yes. his drink and yes. walks out. Well, ah, yeah, because the scene in, ah. the scene listeners the he the, the boss calls him in. He yes. walks in the boss because Edward G. Robinson he's in a full three piece suit without the jacket, but he's still got his vest buttoned up, his yep. tie snugged all the way up. Right, it's just that he has his jacket off, and his boss is like clearly snarking at him. Like I didn't. Are you? Is it uncomfortably warm today? And he looks down and he's like. And Edward G. Robinson, I didn't know it was formal. 
Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. oh, snow. Oh. And so that's why he gives the line at the end of like, next time I'll rent a tuxedo. I love you, Edward T. He's Robinson. so great. Yes. He's so great. Oh, he's so fun. I like him so much. So <sighs> I'm going to have to go on an Edward G. Robinson tear. Yeah. That would be fun. Yeah. yeah. That'd be a lot of movies. It'd be a lot of movies, but so very good ones. And then you'd end with Trumbo. Yes. Trumbo. Yes. <laughs> No, it's just a double feature of Trumbo and Hail Caesar. Yes. Oh, yeah. That, that's a sweet spot right there. Yep. yep. All right. We that's should. A, yeah, we should wrap it up because old Max is so insistent that we wrap it up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, dear listeners, uh, thank you for joining us for episode 50. We will return in a couple weeks with an episode on body heat because, you know, femme fatales. Right, Max? Yes. Yes, right? Don't stick your dick in crazy. Don't stick your dick in crazy. In the meantime. You'll wind up dead. Yeah, right? Max agrees. Max agrees. <laughs> so, I've been Melissa, and I've been joined by... Allie. And... Wendy! 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 <laughs> so, thank you, dear listeners. Ah, that was awkward. We hope you enjoy our film fixation. We'll see you next time on a noir education. Thank you for joining us for a real education noir. New episodes arrive on the 7th and 21st of every month. You can find our podcasts and social media feeds on our website at realedunoir.com. Special thanks to Tim Wick, Jeffrey Brown, and Chad Dutton for our theme music. If you like our show, you might also like our parent podcast, A Real Education, which discusses all genres of film. You can find it on the web at realedu.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time. You know, you uh, ought to take a look at these statistics on show site sometime. You might learn a little something about the insurance business. Mr. Keys, I was raised in the insurance business. Yeah, in the front office. Come now, you've never read an actuarial table in your life, have you? Why, we've got ten volumes on suicide alone. Suicide by race, by color, by occupation, by sex, by seasons of the year, by time of day. Suicide, how committed? By poisons, by firearms, by drowning, by leaps. Suicide by poison, subdivided by types of poison, such as corrosive, irritant, systemic, gaseous, narcotic, alkaloid, protein, and so forth. Suicide by leaps, subdivided by leaps from high places, under the wheels of trains, under the wheels of trucks, under the feet of horses, from steamboats. But Mr. Norton, of all the cases on record, there's not one single case of suicide by leap from the rear end of a moving train. And you know how fast that train was going at the point where the body was found? 15 miles an hour. Now, how can anybody jump off a slow-moving train like that with any kind of expectation that he would kill himself? No, no soap, Mr. Norton. We're sunk and we'll have to pay through the nose, and you know it. May I have this? He's just looking at us like, what are y'all doing? What are all y'all doing? He's just like, sound crew i like yes. you so much best friend with gaffer i like you so much we'll get another dog we'll name him gaffer
Oh. Oh. Gaffer to go with busboy. Do you not want a buddy? Oh. Oh, oh you like being only dog, don't you? Yeah. You like going visit buddies. Buddies are good for visits, but they take away attention in the home. That's true. 